0: All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Liam McCullum Show. I th- believe it's the 90th episode, which is definitely cool to see. Um, I'm gonna have to do something big for the 100th episode that's coming up soon. Episode which is definitely. Oh, I have cool that playing in the background. Um, I'm gonna have to do something big for the 100th episode that's coming up soon. Episode which is. Okay, I think we're good on that end. Okay, but yeah, I'm gonna have to do something big for the the 100th episode. Um, and I, I've been, I, I got a new job here in, in Billing, so I haven't really been paying attention to the news very much. Um, and there was some pretty big news that I heard about uh, the mobilization efforts um, in Russia and the Russia Ukraine war. So I decided I'd bring on someone who I know is following uh, the conflict pretty closely. Um, I've had Ethan on the show before, Ethan Holmes, and I figured just bring him on to talk about current events and, and how he sees the prospects for peace in that conflict. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show, Ethan.
1: Yeah, Liam, thanks for bringing me on. It's uh, it's going to be a great conversation, I'm sure, uh, as they have been in the past.
0: Yeah. So obviously, like the, the biggest news is the mobilization and everyone's talking about it, um, how it's a huge escalation. And, and um, he's all Putin has also mentioned that he is willing to use uh, nukes to defend the new regions um, in, in Ukraine after this referendum uh, that has just gone through. So I, I'm curious, I, I haven't followed it closely, I don't know the the details, but can you just take that wherever you want and um, just get us up to date with the news in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's always a tall order, catching people up um, on the news of a conflict. Uh, especially in in the modern day when what you're competing with is is constant open source intelligence social media posting um people who want to stay hyper connected to this conflict truly like never before are able to and while i wouldn't categorize myself uh in that area i am certainly someone who follows especially the diplomatic and military to military relations Um, as a brief introduction to myself uh, before doing the deep dive into the last couple weeks last couple months of the ukraine conflict I work as a news writer on the Sputnik Newswire, so closely following Eastern European, Russia, U.S. relation issues. And I primarily follow the State Department, Defense Department, White House, and Congressional beats. So kind of all the major players uh, in the U.S. uh, response to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, all the sanctions and the like, covering uh, the Treasury Department, uh, OFAC, the Justice Department when they're involved. Um, So what I'm mainly gonna be able to speak to here is how the U.S. is approaching uh, their sanctions regime, supplying Ukraine with arms and other equipment. Um, and then generally from the Russian side, I can give my, uh, my armchair Kremlinologist view of perhaps what's going on inside the Russian military's mind and the leadership uh, at the Kremlin itself. Uh, but just for a question to see how far back we have to jump here, you mentioned the partial mobilization, which we'll do a big deep dive into I'm sure. Um, and the nuclear rhetoric as well. But going a step back further, I think it's important to stage this with this counteroffensive that Ukraine has been launching recently, Um, particularly the successes that they've been noting uh, in the regions around Kharkiv, there in the north, northeast of Ukraine. You know, that's an area where Russia originally had pushed very deep uh, in their initial tendrils towards Kiev. But um, alas, once those were pulling back, Um, They had a solid amount of forces around Kharkiv and Ukrainian forces have recently pushed them away from there, back towards their true strongholds in the Donbass and the Luhansk uh, and Donetsk regions. Um, Similarly, the counteroffensive has seen uh, less territorial gains in the south um, in areas around uh, Kherson, Izium, they're approaching the Crimean Peninsula. Um, But nonetheless, there is a counteroffensive there. And what's interesting to think about in terms of counteroffensive and its success so far is how much momentum can be kept on the battlefield. Because as the counteroffensive uh, by the Ukrainians has gone on longer and longer, we've heard less about these major gains and more about consolidating the gains um, that they have seen, and the Russians further entrenching um, kind of their uh, side of the lines of contact forward there. Uh, That leaves us in a very interesting position, getting to the point I was trying to make, uh, with winter approaching. Now, it's very, very cliche, especially with the whole uh, Game of Thrones thing, to say winter is coming and mean it as this kind of dark doom and gloom prediction. Um, But in warfare, winter is coming is a very, very serious statement because logistics is at the very, very heart of warfare. And that's something that this conflict, both on the Russian and Ukrainian side, has been highlighted right? A lot of the West support for Ukraine is on the logistics front. It's keeping them armed, uh, getting them cold weather gear now, keeping uh, the munitions flowing so they can have a constant, you know, steady uh, rate of fire going on because this has largely uh, devolved into an artillery long range fire battle. Uh, The Russians similarly will now have to defend the uh, this territory that they've taken, which if I recall correctly, is is roughly the size of the country of Hungary. Uh, They will have to defend this now. Uh, in winter conditions, which in some ways may favor them, in some ways may not. Uh, so the larger point, before I let you chime in here after this long rant, uh, is that the mobilization, the partial mobilization, and this nuclear rhetoric and these referenda, which we'll talk about as well, um, are all preceded by this counteroffensive and this this upcoming winter warfare situation and the linked energy crisis and potential economic crises as well uh in in the western uh the western sphere so did that adequately catch you up at least uh, on that bit hopefully some of that may have been repeat some of it may not have been but nevertheless there it is
0: yeah I'm curious just before this mobilization was there anything that uh directly preceded it that prompted the mobilization was Russia actually being defeated in this counteroffensive? I know there were a lot of um there was a lot of press around the idea that Ukraine was actually defeating uh Russia and and I know that um obviously now knowing that they're they're capable of a larger mobilization and and being that this is actually uh not the the most extreme mobilization that they could really accomplish um it, it really seems like that narrative isn't correct that, that Ukraine was defeating uh Russia and and it seems like really they were limiting themselves so I'm curious as if if it, if Ukraine was pushing Russia back enough and if there was any event that directly preceded this mobilization that, that prompted Putin to uh, launch it?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so I, I would say the counter-offensive probably played into the decision. Once again, it's very difficult to read into the minds uh, of, of the Kremlin and its top military strategic leaders, um, let alone uh, Vladimir Putin himself. Uh, I am always hesitant to attach the words winning or losing at any given moment, um, especially in this conflict. Uh, The competing narratives that we've seen, I mean, just this total one screen, two totally different movie plots playing out in front of us with this conflict, it's a very prominent phenomenon. Um, Depending on what you're following, who you're listening to, uh, what out of context battlefield clips you're watching, you can get very different impressions of what's going on. Well, what I can cementedly say is that Ukraine has been taking back territory that they had previously lost during uh, Russia's push into the country. Right. So, from a Russian perspective, you can argue the optimistic kind of a German World War One take, which is, you know, even though we've been pushed back, we're getting pushed back on territory that we've taken. Um, from the Ukrainian side, they are reclaiming territory that was previously taken from them. Uh, so. You can frame it in several different ways, depending on your perspective. um, But it is it is unquestionable, undoubted uh, that Ukraine has been reclaiming territory previously lost, um, and both sides have been trying to truly consolidate what they have um, gained on the battlefield so far. Uh, The Pentagon recently said that they don't believe Ukraine's larger goal uh, of taking over Ukraine, as the Pentagon reported at the beginning, has changed. The Pentagon's analysis is still that Russia wants to take over the entirety of Ukraine, uh, wipe its existence from the map, essentially. Uh, the Kremlin, in its rhetoric and stated goals at least, doesn't seem to be following along the same lines. They do truly, authentically seem to be viewing this as a special military operation, at least at this point. You can argue that perhaps their goals did change after um, the initial circumstances, the initial uh, facts of their, of their push deeper towards Kiev. Um, but now we are in a situation where um, Russia and Ukraine are almost are almost similarly positioned as it is. Right. But before talking about the mobilization, the Ukrainians made this counter push, uh, taking back some ter- territory. The Russians really try and consolidate their lines and not lose any more of what they've already taken. And that's where I was going with this winter stalemate situation coming up being very, very important. To see how things play out and if ukraine here before it gets truly cold and the you know the weather conditions get less than favorable for offensive operations whether they can get more here in the next several weeks in this push Um, however you did mention that there is always this lingering possibility that russia has been holding back Um, people on the front lines uh, from the ukrainian side foreign mercenaries that i've listened to interviews with have stated that they are rather worried and concerned by the fact that they haven't seen a massive amount of Russian air power in particular over the country, a lot of their more advanced fighter jets, aerial systems. Um, and you know, you can take an optimistic point of view as a Westerner and say, maybe that means that they're not um, in well enough condition and repair. They're not being sustained properly as an air fleet. And so that's why they're not flying over u- over Ukraine. You can argue that the airspace is that well contested by ukrainian anti-air systems um, provided by the West, or previously located there Um, or you can view it as russia is simply not using those air assets over ukraine at this moment um i once again don't have enough uh i don't have a top secret classified clearance from either side to be looking deep into this and see what the reality of the situation is Uh, and so i'm always very hesitant to be putting uh cement language behind claims in the fog of war uh but I hope that answered your question at least partially I my personal hunch is that Russia is holding back uh to a certain extent that they're certainly not launching a full total war effort um against Ukraine I don't think that was ever the plan uh because that's that's a much greater commitment than people realize and this will trickle into our discussion maybe about the mobilization but a mobilization of 300,000 soldiers, while it sounds like a lot and is, is not a huge fraction uh, of Russia's overall manpower that they could muster should they truly uh, try and uh, express their will to.
0: Yeah, just I guess to get into the details of the mobilization, Putin made his uh, speech and announcement that they were going to mobilize last week, late last week. Um, I guess what were some of the key points in that speech that, that you took away um I, I guess, what are the things we need to know? What did Putin say that st- stood out to you?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think um, a really important place to start here is Putin's dedication in the speech, right? He dedicated the speech where he announced the mobilization of the Russian people to the people of uh, the Donetsk People's Republic, the Luhansk People's Republic, these places that were going to be holding these referenda, whether you believe them to be shams or not, um, he dedicated his speech on the mobilization of Russians to those people. Now, you can be sitting here maybe thinking why is this significant at all? Well, Russians um are rather fond of symbolism, right? Um they're very I I, I don't want to say intellectual people, but they're people who understand uh, the larger statements and meanings um behind the actions and words of their figureheads in particular. And by dedicating this mobilization to these places where they're going to have referenda, it's truly extending them uh, this. Uh, th- they're really extending the full might of the Russian Federation behind these places, which is what these places purportedly have been asking Russia to do since like twenty fourteen and purported mistreatment and increased uh, you know artillery fire and and bombardment by the uh, forces of Kiev. And you can also view it as russia formally at that point welcoming them into this larger russian sphere now this is a point i think i've made on your show before but i I really like to reiterate because i think it's important the russian language has two different forms of the word russian and and they mean different things there's ruski and ruski means a person of the russian ethnicity the Narod, like the russian people by blood by genetics uh which itself is a is a contentious issue in some ways then there's uh, Russiski, and Russiski is a citizen of Russia, someone who would identify themselves with the geopolitical entity, the nation state of Russia. And by dedicating this speech uh, of the mobilization, not of the, of the Ruskis, but of the Russiski, you know, it's, it's largely, uh, as many people have pointed out, these ethnic minorities that are getting disproportionately sent to Ukraine, and there's many reasons for that. Uh, in these places in the the Caucasus, the Caucasus Mountains there in the south of Russia, uh, from out and far in Siberia, one the economic opportunities there aren't so great compared to larger cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, and so more people, just like in the United States, in this low-income demographic, are pushed towards military service. Also, in this Ukraine conflict, they've largely been using contractors, right, and contractors. Uh, as I understand it, we're getting paid more up front than just your standard Russian military grunt. Um, Also, these cultures, not ubiquitously, but generally have more of of an honorific uh, warrior spirit to them, especially in the Caucasus, but Siberia as well. Going to war and serving uh, the military is something that's more expected uh, or or has uh, less negative association with it at the very least um inversely from big cities like moscow uh, where there's a lot of political elite business elite um, people in the upper echelons of russian society there's less people overall being mobilized right and so to kind of loop back into those kind of a lot of scattered info thrown about uh the important thing to note about this mobilization up front is that it's extending in russia's view the russian sphere formally, officially into those regions. And that's what those referenda are backing up. So for those unfamiliar, uh, in the regions of Zaporizhia, Kherson, the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic, uh, they recently held referenda or purported to hold referenda in which these uh, populations were to decide by popular vote whether they would like to join the Russian Federation. And by all accounts that we've seen so far, by the people who are able to report on the election results, it seems as though they overwhelmingly voted to join the Russian Federation. Now people uh, are probably rightfully sitting there thinking, well, that kind of seems like what we'd expect, right? A lot of people um, paint these as total sham referenda, uh, that there's not a single legitimate ballot cast, that it's all done at gunpoint and under coercion. Um, And while it is certainly referenda happening in actively contested war zone, there is undoubtedly a cemented, solid chunk of the population in all these regions, especially in the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, who have been stating for years that they feel much closer to the Russian people. Um, as we've gone over in more of our history podcasts on the on the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict, as I'm sure you talked about yesterday, um, or earlier today, rather, in the interview that's going to release, um, these parts of Ukraine are Russian speaking. Uh, largely Russian-speaking and not Ukrainian-speaking. And one thing that people in the West, especially American English speakers, don't seem to quite grasp is the pride and identity that goes with the Russian language. Uh, Russians are very, very proud of their language, of its literary and poetic feats, um, of its lasting power um, and its its prominence as, as a global critical language. They're very, very connected to it. Um, And so while in in some people's mind, this may seem like a small difference. Oh, they live on land considered Ukraine. And even though they speak Russian, um, you know, that that's a secondary concern to a lot of people in that area, that Russian language, that Russian identity uh, trumps uh, any, you know, newer political uh, entity known as Ukraine, right? And, and I don't want to get into the whole, how did Ukraine come kind of to form as a nation state? What bits were added to it at what given times? Because for those who don't know, Ukraine was kind of piecemealed together over time, um, bits have been added to it from other territories, um, under, you know, Soviet days as gifts and the like. Um, so to say that Ukraine, as we knew it, post um, fall of the Soviet Union, is just Ukraine and the people there have never thought anything otherwise. That's just, a, that's just a total lie. Now, you can also then very legitimately say that these referenda happened under active war zone conditions and aren't, and uh, as such aren't ideal uh, for democ- the democratic process. Uh, but you have to also ask yourself, perhaps from the Russian perspective, uh, perspective, even if these referenda happened under peaceful circumstances, would they ever recognize them? Uh, and that's a really interesting question. Obviously, it's a hypothetical, Uh, And so we can't answer it. But my hunch would be that if these regions like the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic uh, really did cementedly express their own desire independently in the long run to separate away from Ukraine, I don't think Western powers would consider any such referenda legitimate, regardless of whether there's uh, an active
0: conflict. Isn't it true that uh, the Donbass region held a referendum shortly after the, the 2014 coup in which they they voted to join Russia, and then Russia rejected that that so, vote.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's um, and that's a really good point. I should have emphasized this uh, more earlier. Uh, when Putin extended uh, in his speech that dedication to the people of, of the Donbass, um, that was the first time he really was acknowledging that because he he had been, as you correctly pointed out keeping them at more of a distance right he had been recognizing their pseudo sovereignty as a breakaway autonomous entity but he hadn't been formally welcome welcoming them into the russian family so to speak and that's what was so significant about his speech and about the larger um russian operation in general is that it does seem to be uh an open statement by the russian government that should people who seem to consider themselves Russian by identity, by language, by political will, um, should they express those legitimate desires, there's a chance now that Russia will back them up with their military might. Because Ukraine isn't the only place with Russian speaking enclaves. It's definitely the most prominent, uh, especially there in the Donbass region. But there are, for example, Russian speaking um, populations throughout the Baltics Who have claimed discrimination by the baltic governments for being russian-speaking and while that is far 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 less likely that uh in my mind that russia would go and pursue special military operations in the baltics for these much smaller pockets of of russian uh russian-speaking populations um, it does go to show that ukraine's not unique in that way Um, it's just the one here at the forefront for for good reason Uh, people have been predicting this as a potential flashpoint for a long while and it wasn't just since 2014. Um, The expansion of NATO towards Ukraine has been talked about for decades Uh, one of my favorite historical points to, to to point to to highlight for people is at the turn of the century right after Putin took office Putin kind of once again symbolically took office on January 1st, New Year's of the year 2000, right at the turn of the millennium. And uh, when Bill Clinton was still in office before the 2000 elections, he pitched in a meeting that Russia join NATO, that NATO be reformed as a political, diplomatic, somewhat strategic structure under which potential conflicts could be uh, avoided, could be deescalated between the former uh, Warsaw Pact, the former Soviet bloc, and the West, the NATO sphere. Uh, Clinton was purportedly rather open to it, but his advisors were very much not. Uh, And George W. Bush, when Putin was still uh, somewhat uh, favorable uh, towards the idea uh, there in the early 2000s, early on in the Bush presidency, uh, he was likewise not so eager to make any promises about halting NATO expansion, let alone bringing Russia into NATO itself. But when we're sitting here in 2022, amid this conflict, uh, with nuclear rhetoric now floating around um, rather heavy uh, handedly, we have to ask ourselves, recognizing that hindsight may be 2020, should we have more seriously considered proposals like that? Should we have more seriously considered forming genuine multilateral alliances with Russia included? Because... And, and I've talked about this on your podcast as well, to understand Russia now, you have to understand what Russia went through in the 90s, the entire post-Soviet sphere, but particularly Russia. Once again, uh, Russia is a country defined by beauty, power, and pride, especially by its own people in their mind. And falling from that bipolar second superpower of the world to a you know, second rate country, Uh, having their economy collapse, having their life expectancy plummet, alcoholism rise, drug use, organized crime, all of that that we hear about, that's not just just jokes, that's not just stereotypes. That was a very real, very harsh, horrific reality for a lot of people in the post-Soviet sphere. And so when Russia kind of got back up on its feet, when Vladimir Putin first took office, and he's looking by asserting things like perhaps Russia joining NATO, it was a chance for the West to reach out an olive branch and help the wounded pride of Russia. Now, you can argue we have no such obligation as rivals to reach out an olive branch, and the strategically wise move is to keep them at a distance and keep them out. But if the true goal is peace and friendship among nations, uh, to be truly diplomatically engaged first and foremost, instead of first and foremost militarily minded, those sorts of proposals seem to have a lot of merit nowadays. And now it seems very, very unlikely that Russia or any Russia-aligned state would be willing to join in uh, to a multilateral alliance with the West, because from Russia's perspective, they can't trust the West's word. That's another thing from Russian culture um, that Russians often uh, criticize uh, people in the West about. It's a lack of sincerity and authenticity. Uh, We're often criticized for being very, very performative. A, a small example of that being in asking, how are you, right? We say, how are you as a greeting? Rarely, if we're honest with ourselves, do we care about the answer or any sort of response? It's pure formality. When Russians ask, how are you? Granted, it's like it can sometimes be a greeting, but more frequently it is meant as a sincere question. You don't just ask someone, how are you, to ask how they are. You are doing so with the expectation that you will listen to the answer. And you know, the answer may not necessarily be good, right? And and so Russians and people uh, of the Slavic sphere more generally will often criticize the West of being unable to hold a sincere conversation uh, because they're tough conversations, right? And so when Russia is asserting uh, its concerns, for example, about NATO expansion, we can sit here and go, oh yeah, of course you're concerned about NATO expanding, right? But Russia's going, yeah, yes, we are concerned about NATO exp- like we're not. We're not just saying this because it's the performative thing to do because the, strategic, uh, the strategically-minded power would put out such a statement. No, it's, it's not about that. Um, and so not to, not to linger on that too long, but I think it is an important cultural note for people to understand, um, especially if we're going to start considering things like fruitful, serious peace talks and, and peace negotiations, we can't go into it being performative diplomats. We have to go in there Hearts on sleeve, ready for for passionate, tough conversations. Um, and if we're not, then we're not truly ready for diplomacy. Um, and that's not what I think the American people are ready for. I think the American people look at the like 19 billion, I think it is, we've sent to Ukraine since 2014, like 16 plus billion just in uh since the Biden administration's taken office. And they wonder why we're not. At least trying to get that money spent back at home, why we're not trying to disengage from this conflict, why we're not trying to broker some sort of peace, because we look at countries like Mexico, countries like Turkey, countries who we don't typically think of as negotiators of peace, these, uh, these diplomatic powerhouses on, on the world stage, but they're making calls for peace. They're trying to genuinely broker negotiations between Russia, Ukraine, get the UN involved, you know, for better or for worse, um, but they're trying and they're genuinely pleading. Even India has been very, very uh, on the fence in this conflict. They've they've given the lip service where they have to. They haven't outright supported Russia or anything like that. But India very clearly does also does not want this conflict to extend further and further and develop, uh, further deteriorate the world energy markets, food markets, in a way that is going to negatively impact them. And at the United Nations... India made a a very serious big fuss about the impact that this conflict can continue to have on the developing world, on the global south, as they like to put it. And once again, from the comfort of American grocery stores, our relatively secure supply chains, our relatively developed economies, our access to uh, American natural resources and energy, it's tough to realize the anxiety that some of these undeveloped countries are feeling with unstable world food and and energy markets because food and and raw energy, uh, not clean energy, things like fossil fuel, coal, natural gas, those are the things that develop economies. Those are literally their lifeblood. Uh, And so I think once again, if we're also serious about being the good guy on the world stage, about being not just the biggest might, but the biggest peacemaker, uh, we have to start seriously sincerely thinking and being empathetic not just about the concerns of the adversary of russia that's tough in any conflict scenario but of all the people that the sanctions and the prolongation of the conflict is affecting Uh, because those are the people whose cries for peace aren't performative it's not propaganda they're genuine and if we can't recognize that we are fucked.
0: yeah um it is interesting uh just like a quick point like that you mentioned the whole performative aspect of, of the way that Americans speak. The most interesting part about this, and I think uh, it, it's also somewhat tied back to 9-11 and, and the way that uh, Americans spoke of Osama bin Laden, is when a leader like this is directly telling you exactly what their problem is, somehow the United States is able to just say it is performative and and they they almost write off every single thing putin says as some weird machiavellian um, strategic ambiguity like vague arbitrary language that that you can't just take at face value so like when putin says that his concern is western buildup in ukraine and on russia's border um, the u.s response to that is oh he must be uh he must mean something else or uh, he must have some bad intent behind it, and there, it's not rational at all. Or, um, and, and it always seems like, like even when it when it comes to the nuclear threat, it's like no, he he can't mean that. He must mean something else. Like he's playing forty chess here, and when he actually says something, he means something completely different. And he he has planned four steps ahead. And the reason he's saying what he's currently saying is not what he's saying. And um, it is interesting that that you made that that point, because it it seems to be uh, exactly the U.S. uh, narrative of about Putin is is that he is performative and and really he's telling you his his problems. um, And and none of the issues are taken head on. Uh, It's just like, well, no, he's lying about NATO expansion or no, he's lying about um, far right extremists in Ukraine. And it's like we never actually answer to the concerns that he's bringing up. Um, like we don't come up with legitimate arguments against those concerns. Um, it's always that he's somehow manipulating.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the really disappointing part. Knowing that we could very well develop well reasoned, good arguments, good responses from classic traditional American values and standpoints, right? But that's not what this administration, certainly in in the last several decades of US administrations seems to have been all about, particularly in the foreign policy towards Russia. Um, And it's not just recently that Putin has been making these statements. Putin very, very clearly, um, once again, in the last, especially 10, 12 years, has laid out exactly what his concerns about NATO expansion are, exactly what his uh, red lines would be. And we continued to push and push and push. Uh, right up to those lines that Putin laid and then are shocked um, when we see a, a reaction. Now, that's not meant to justify the reaction, right? Um, one of the frustrating things nowadays is that when when you even attempt to argue from a Russian perspective um, or to give insights to your own positions that take into account um, those views, your viewed is sympathetic to a sort of uh, to an enemy. Uh, they're viewed as totally non-good faith, illegitimate arguments, and once again, that's that's a terrible way to think because that's not that's not how they're thinking certainly, and it's not how someone who genuinely desires peace thinks either. Um, I don't know exactly what game the the State Department and the Pentagon is trying to play with Russia, what their assessment of, of Russia's uh, goals are. But it seems, if you, if you take them at, at face value, at least, Russia's claims, um, I don't think we would have to go much further than a deal, which was which was right there, so close to being brokered. Uh, Dave Smith talked about this earlier on Joe Rogan, uh, which i love to see. But we were on the edge of a deal, right, where Russia and Ukraine would agree that Russia would de-escalate all the military posturing, Um in exchange for Ukraine agreeing not to join NATO, at least for a set period of time, as well as uh, autonomy for the Donbass region, right? And when you look at it, if you were just to hear that that deal was negotiated now, right? Like right on the cusp of our conflict, let's say like February 20th of this year, we had brokered that that peace. Especially in hindsight, we would say that's one heck of a deal right? Because as it stands, Russia has taken more than just the Donbass. As I mentioned, um, when I outlined, at least on uh, on Google Maps, the area of most of the of the recent post-counteroffensive um, territory maps, Russia, including the areas of the Donbass, has taken an area about the size of Hungary, give or take. That's the most comparable country I could find. Um, and that's not insignificant. And that's more then they would have um, guaranteed autonomy for, not necessarily joining Russia, but just autonomy for the Donbass is far less than what they've now seized as part of their special military operation. Now you can contend the Ukraine's gonna take all that back so it doesn't matter, but if they don't, then once again, in hindsight, that seems like it would have been a really, really great deal. And you also have to ask yourself, what does Ukraine bring to NATO other than expanding their borders right up to Russia's. You know, if there were to be a really great argument of NATO, uh, Ukraine has cutting edge military technology, they have some of the the largest forces around which they do have considerably large forces. uh, But uh, their positioning is really their only thing of value. It's their value is being a threatening NATO asset to Russia. And you can't then argue that NATO is not, you can say it's not an aggressive organization, but it's certainly a threatening one um, when they start to further and further push and and take these countries in, arguably just as meat shield buffer states for them, um, but also as threatening posturing, uh, bringing themselves closer and closer to Russia, despite consistent calls, that um, that would result in conflict. And as Dave Smith also so wonderfully pointed out, should avoiding nuclear conflict and genuine near peer warfare between players like NATO and and Russia, NATO and China, should those not be the highest priorities of our diplomatic and military staff? Ukraine aside, let's look at Taiwan. Uh, We continue, people like Pelosi, to blatantly uh, poke the bear, poke the tiger, so to speak. Now, you can argue the US has every single right to do so, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree. But just because you have that right and liberty in the international stage to go and fly to Taiwan uh, uh, amid high tensions, that doesn't mean you do so. It's blatant. It's flippant. And granted, the US has the military might to back it up. China can't just uh, automatically decide that it's going to go to conflict over a small slight like that. Small slights like that really, really add up. Um, Especially in countries who value their pride and and their their identity on the world stage. Uh, So Maybe maybe I'm being too sympathetic and bleeding heart here in in my uh, international relations perspective. But as someone who truly, sincerely desires peace above all else and truly thinks that the U.S. is in a position to be a really good player uh, in brokering peace in situations like this, I am I'm absolutely ashamed. I'm appalled and disappointed to to see the government not putting their best foot forward and not truly sincerely pushing for peace. Because that's almost everyone I talked to that's not just totally gung-ho all aboard, seeing Ukraine get the victory all the way through this. Everyone is talking about a negotiated peace, except our government.
0: I believe the responsible statecraft actually came out with a poll that said uh, more than 60% of Americans would prefer that the United States government is seeking peace. And if there are any military guarantees that it be um, conditioned upon uh, that there there is a proactive um, effort to achieve peace. And and I am curious just more about how that deal would look right now. Um, I, I know th- there were the Minsk and the Minsk two agreements. Um, it seemed like that was the goal of at least Russia at the beginning of this war. I'm wondering how much that's evolved. Uh, what it would take to achieve peace, you think, uh, um, what you think it would take to achieve peace in Russia um, or in Ukraine, and whether you think that's feasible?
1: Of course it's feasible. Um, It just takes will. And I'm not sure that that will is there right now, but I think we we can get there. I think we can get there. It's just going to take I think a large uh, public push uh, or at least a big uh, wake up call, a slap in the face. Um, 60% is about what I think that that sound that sounds about right, because there is a good chunk of our population who um, I almost feel are expressing their suppressed patriotism through Ukraine, right? Because it's a lot of people who you wouldn't necessarily consider gung ho uh, pro-military, uh, offensive interventionist types, right? Um, particularly a lot of these people in the Democratic Party who I'd think of as kind of kind of foreign policy hippies are, you know, they wave that Ukrainian flag more proud than they've ever waved an American flag, at least that I've seen. And and it really makes me feel a lot of the time that these people who haven't been a, uh, allowed to be as proud as they'd like to be of America uh, to express that that patriotic impulse are largely doing so through Ukraine um i don't think that's necessarily a positive thing i think it's an understandable thing i would rather just express american patriotism um but that could be a hurdle to overcome this staunch block especially in congress um and it might be partially a sunk cost fallacy like i've said we've put over 16 billion dollars towards ukraine since the beginning of the biden administration 16 billion plus um and that's amid economic concerns by the average person amid rising inflation, and with the Federal Reserve doing their shenanigans, right, people want to do well for themselves, first and foremost, right, I I really hate hammering home self interest and egoist lines. But as a general statement, especially about um, national level politics, that's true, people want their nation to do well, first and foremost. Um, And as we see supply chains continue to get ravaged, as we see Uh, food insecurity become a greater issue, as we see energy security uh, become a greater issue, especially in Europe, I think people are really, really, really going to have to start questioning and will naturally start questioning, how much am I willing to sacrifice for Ukraine? Now, these politicians and these Pentagon officials have been very, very staunch, especially in the last several weeks now that people have been questioning them about it. They say it's unwavering. The support of the American people and the American government and our allies' governments—it is unwavering, and it's—it's not getting shook anytime soon. But like we are seeing from results like these polls, that may not be the sentiment among the average people. It's easy to say from the life of a the luxurious life of a lawmaker, from a Nancy Pelosi, um, from a top Pentagon official, right? It's easy to say, oh yeah, of course, our faith is unwavering. But for the person who's paying more and more for gas, uh, the person who uh, doesn't get to go, um, their paycheck isn't going as far anymore. You know, those are the people who are asking themselves, am I willing to sacrifice as much for Ukraine? And that's going to show up in the midterms in November. Um, That's going to start showing up in how people are uh, 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 voicing uh, their opinions online. I think people have been kind of like... with the polling with Trump, right, where people were kind of ashamed to say, "Oh, like yeah, I'm supporting Trump." I think a lot of people are going and hiding how much they're really doubting their support long run uh, for for the U.S. sustaining this conflict as opposed to brokering peace because they don't want to come across as someone being sympathetic to Russia. But that's not being sympathetic to Russia as much as it is being sympathetic to your own self interests, um, being sympathetic to your family's well being um and the well-being of families around the world right i i feel incredibly bad for all the ukrainian soldiers all the ukrainian civilians who have died as a result of this conflict i feel equally bad for all the russian soldiers um and, and you know russian men who have been sent to the front lines who have died as part of this conflict right do i think that it's those people who are largely dying in the meat grinder um whose interests are being served by this do i think you know, the the Russian uh, mobilized soldier, part of that 300K, do I think his interests are being uh, well served by the prolongation of this conflict? No. Do I think that Ukrainian soldier, the Ukrainian family who's sitting there in Poland waiting to return to their country, do I think that prolonging the conflict is in their best interest? No, I also don't. It only seems to be in the best interest of the governments involved. I don't know if the U.S. government... uh, is just dying to like replenish their stocks. Like they're getting rid of all of their old stuff just as an excuse to buy new ones. I don't know if this is just a giant boon for Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin and all these other contractors. Um, I, I don't know if that's the intent. We're trying to prop up our economy um, with wartime production increases or something. Maybe there's some angle that I'm really truly missing in this. But to me, it just seems as though this is a giant excuse to burn lives to burn money uh to burn goodwill on the world stage and i don't see where the silver lining is other than some vague notion that we're protecting the us's hegemonic status on the world stage right i've said this on your podcast before and and i just think it really summarizes a lot of what we've said so far i'm not a critic of the west position because i hate the west but rather because I love it. I know we could be doing so much better. I know we could be pursuing such a, a more productive foreign policy. And Russia could too, and Ukraine could too. And the fact that we seem to be choosing the worst of all possible options at almost every corner, it's just, it's, uh, it's hard not to get to get black-pilled by that. You really wonder if the people in charge, the powers that be, give a fuck about the average person um, who's really suffering as a result of this conflict on both sides of the equation.
0: Yeah, often I think what you hear um, from the blue check marks with uh, Ukrainian flags or the bots with Ukrainian flags in their in their uh, usernames on Twitter is um, that it's almost like they I do really resonate with what you're saying about like their their patriots patriotism. And I do think that that's what it is, is um, they're incapable of. uh, being patriotic for the United States or but there's still that desire and they're they're seeking after that in in this conflict um it's
1: like maladaptive socialization like it been socialized into being patriotic of a country that's not theirs
0: exactly and you know I saw an argument earlier today where um they they had mentioned how there was someone who was advocating that they would rather prolong this war than have parts of Ukraine live under Russia because of how tyrannical Putin is and, and I'm curious to hear your response to that that um it it would be worse that Ukrainians live under Russia than um than actually like dying in conflict like do you think that there's actually this sentiment in Ukraine or are those just Americans speaking for Ukrainians in this instance because I I just see that and I feel like it's it's so um careless that you would rather continue this war and fuel this war uh than negotiate an end to it because the the truth is is that the the Ukrainians are the ones dying on on the ground and if and um the longer it takes to negotiate peace the more Ukrainians will die and seemingly Russia is willing to mobilize um they they're now uh, doing a, what is it, a half mobilization? Is that the- yeah,
1: they're, a partial mobilization, I think, is the term that's stuck on. And it's uh, 300,000 soldiers expected. And it's, um, it's not drafting untrained people. As I understand the order, it's drafting, um, mobilizing people who have prior military experience, prior service in the Russian military. Now, granted, that's pretty much every single Russian male of decent health who didn't avoid it by- uh, sticking through university and a higher education. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's people who have previous military training. Um, and 300,000 is a, uh, only a portion of the forces that Russia could mobilize. Uh, Russia could mobilize well over a million troops if they really wanted to, uh, more than that even. Um, but once again, this isn't uh, a full-blown war. This isn't uh, a war for survival. Uh, like Russia viewed, the Soviet Union rather, like the great patriotic war, World War II, where literally everyone is involved in the war effort from from man, woman, child. Uh, so I don't think they're even close to that point right now, uh, right. With this partial mobilization. But to be clear, 300,000 people is not a number to scoff at. My understanding, circling back to this winter issue and kind of uh, this stalled front that we're seeing, Psychologically, you're going to have casualties after so long on the battlefield, right? Especially when we've reached this World War I style artillery barrage where the positions are, are largely dug in. There might be small, you know, couple dozen, couple hundred meters here and there advancing. But after, you know, a couple hundred days, you know, 100, 200 days in conflict, you have to start rotating troops out or you're just going to have psychological casualties on the front, regardless if, if they've taken a single bullet or single piece of shrapnel, right? And so for both Ukraine and Russia, especially coming up into winter, now is a good time to start cycling the troops, right? While, while fronts are stalled, try and and cycle new troops in there to get combat front experience, take those who have been on the front, uh, for a long while, let them get some time off away, especially if you're going to send them back, uh, further in winter. Um, but just generally speaking, to, to get to the point on, on this, uh, the mobilization from the Russian perspective could be not only to uh, bolster and consolidate those gains they have um, made, but also largely to start um, filtering troops uh, from uh, from the front lines to the back to recoup, um, or else you're not gonna be able to ma- maintain a fighting force and you're not gonna be able to use those experienced soldiers, uh, use their experience to the best of its advantage later on. Uh, so. Uh, that could also explain the mobilization, uh, Ukraine continues to call up and train troops. Um, there've been reports that Russia is being very, very hasty and shoddy in their training uh, of these soldiers going there. And once again, that could be because they're given a shot in training or because it's been determined that as previous, um, having previous military experience, they don't need to be trained as much for going to the front. I don't know the, the ins and outs of Russian military doctrine nor Ukrainian military doctrine. Um, But I do know that both sides seem to be trying to uh, cycle troops from their front lines um, as much as possible here, especially before the winter months.
0: Yeah. And I I just think that there's overall an an arrogance and a um, kind of a privilege with a lot of these Americans who are advocating for for war to continue in Ukraine, as it it is Ukrainians that will have to sacrifice um, if if peace isn't achieved soon. Uh, but well, and, and not just the uh, Ukrainians as well,
1: Russians as well, and people all over the world from the secondary impacts. People are very right. bad at thinking about the secondary and tertiary impacts uh, of things, especially like sanctions. And, uh, you know, people who starve uh, as a result of not getting grain from Ukraine and Russia um, for uh, when entire agricultural markets collapse because there's not enough fertilizer out there on the market, those deaths are... Just as attributable to the conflict and the mishandling thereof, uh, as, as each bullet fired. Um, I did want to touch on uh, quickly, though, something that um, we we had kind of we had kind of brushed close to it earlier with energy security, but this Nord Stream two situation as well is very very intriguing, right? It's a, a case that's still unfolding. We don't know all the facts, all the info. But what is clear is that the Nord Stream pipelines there would provide fuel from Russia to, to Europe to Germany there via the Baltic Sea. Um, s- some sort of explosions occurred and I think three places along the pipelines, um, which is wild because investigators think it's Swedish investigators are looking into it as 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 a criminal investigation and have explicitly stated that foreign involvement uh, is not ruled out in this. Now. The US today said uh, the Pentagon, State Department, White House have all denied any sort of US involvement, but of course they deny US involvement. No one's gonna openly admit to it. I've seen speculation about Norway being responsible, about Poland being responsible, about Denmark being responsible, about Russia being responsible even. Um, And right now I don't have much better of a guess than anyone else out there. Russia blowing it on its own. I'm not going to totally discount it, right? Um, it's totally possible for a government to do a false flag um, in the name of, of war and broken conflict. Um, but in this situation, they really truly could have just turned off the gas like they've done before with their energy, right? They, they don't get much by sabotaging the pipeline, especially when their leverage is being able to turn it back on with a, with a sabotage destroyed pipeline being able to say, oh, yeah, if you, you know, if you go along, if you start, uh, you know, marching towards a peace that could be favorable, we can start talking about energy. If you lift some sanctions, we'll start talking about energy with a destroyed pipeline. You lose that leverage. Um, so once again, granted, I'm not going to I'm not going to discount the possibility that Russia did it entirely, but there would certainly be clear trade offs for doing so. And also seemingly better options to ac- uh, achieve the same results
0: did now. you, see, did Sorry, you see that there was a, a european official i forget who it was um i might be able to pull him up but a european official actually tweeted out and and they're fairly hawkish towards russia uh thanks thanks uh, the united uh, the Polish, states
1: uh, european parliament lawmaker guy or whatever
0: yeah yes so what I, did he,
1: I did see that I, was that
0: just a joke or is he i'm is going, going he to give thing? like
1: benefit of the doubt that that's a joke um I think the tweet would have been deleted and covered up much more quickly if that was a genuine intelligence leak. I also don't think that the US government is trusting some random Polish EU lawmaker with the fact that they sabotaged a Russian pipeline. If they did, if they were to have sabotaged a Russian pipeline, that they would like reveal to people like him that that's the case. Um, But that does go to show where people like him, uh, where their minds are, right? Because it does seem if you were just to like instant kind of Occam's razor, simplest explanation thing is you go, oh yeah, someone who doesn't like Russia sabotaged a Russian pipeline, right? That is easiest explanation here. And you look at the list of players and US is just about at the top of that list, right? And it takes a certain amount of capabilities. I think they said the the explosions and leaks are like 80 to 100 meters under the sea or something like that. Um, And so you need submarines or like class A diving teams um, to be able to, to do anything like that. Once again, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a literal seal well-versed in underwater ordinances, but I'd assume it's not easy to do something like that on a giant pipeline enough to cause considerable damage at least. Uh, so the number of people who would be capable of sabotage, I think are limited. Um, but Russia, the United States, other European actors, uh, in the region are certainly suspects, right? We're kind of in a, a game of, um, of clue right now of, of who, who done it. And it'll be curious to see the results because it'll almost certainly be someone who's denied it too, right? Because all the, the major suspects have seemed to deny it. So I don't have much more to say than that, but I will say it is remarkably interesting um, that such a thing uh, occurred. Uh, and as winter approaches, once again, Europe. I would like to say that the person who benefits the most from Nord Stream 2 going down could be the U.S. only because now Germany has no other option to buy things like liquid natural gas except from sources like the United States. Um, and the U.S. has very clearly offered our liquid natural gas. Uh, so I'm not sure environmentally how good um, it is to ship massive amounts of energy all the way across the Atlantic, especially when there's like a pipeline already built right there, but. Um, I'm also not the first to worry about um, the climate as the very first concern and things like this when when nuclear rhetoric and, and total world war is is at stake.
0: Yeah. I, nuclear I,
1: war I, would also be bad for the environment.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the interesting part about this. Right. Like the uh, I mean, with all of these green energy policies that are kind of choking out Europe <laughs> right now, um, And then obviously with this this uh, leak yesterday with the Nord Stream pipeline, we're just seeing that like the effects of war are worse for the environment. than I mean, like everything else that ESG politicians are focusing on, honestly, like I think we should seriously question every single politician that that mentions individual car use and mentions, you know, burping cows um, before they mention militarism in the United States government. Uh, if, if that isn't one of the first things that you mention when you're talking about your concern about the environment, um, then I just can't take you seriously. Like if, if you're going to treat militarism as a given, but not the jobs of, and, and the livelihoods and the, the energy and the food sources of, of people in Europe and United States, um, then I, I just can't take you seriously in in your concerns about, um, the environment seriously if if the the emissions and the pollution of the US military isn't the first priority
1: well and uh of these so-called you know uh, green environmentalists in Europe and these European green parties um one of the few times Pentagon uh, has answered a question from me or no this was State Department sorry the State Department answered a question from me about Germany um, continuing to look to shut down its nuclear power plants in the country, which they began after the Fukushima disaster, they began to phase out the nuclear plants. And the last of them were set to be phased out by the end of this year. And their finance minister, their economic minister, whatever it is there in Germany, was saying, I think we should delay, I think we should keep the ones we have open, open, at the very least, you know, I think he may have even been saying we should consider reopening the ones that we have deactivated. But they're, climate minister was a member of the Green Party and was initially saying, nah, like we should, we need to keep shutting down our nuclear power plants amid a impending energy crisis. Um, and it was just baffling to me. And the State Department did say that they are favorable towards Germany making whatever decision it is that they do, um, including keeping their nuclear power stations open. And that the U.S. would even offer um, their typical support, their support suite to go and help Germany um in whatever way the US government can. Uh, and I think since then the Green uh party member energy minister has come around and say that they also support keeping those nuclear power plants open. But the fact that was even a question was ludicrous. And then to see days later, I think it was in Belgium that they did shut down this major nuclear power plant in the country. Do these leaders hate their people? And like I'm not saying that to be like rhetorical. I mean, genuinely, you look at a situation like this and you go, Do these people give a fuck about the livelihood of others do they care about the average person having access to energy let alone clean energy like from a nuclear plant right it's just it's 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 baffling it's baffling to to know that leaders like that are in charge and maybe they're just so much smarter that they have a great reason for closing down that nuclear plant but i would love to hear it because i haven't yeah Uh, and i think once again people all over europe like the common people are going to be the ones looking at their energy bills shivering there cold and hungry and wondering hmm is this really worth it to keep a hungry sized bit of territory of mostly russian speakers from russia is that really worth it yeah if i'm cold hungry uh sitting there in some european slum and my leaders shut down uh options to keep me warm and fed i would be pretty pissed
0: yeah well i i had um uh, Clint Russell from Liberty Lockdown on my show a while ago to talk about uh, or just a couple of weeks ago to talk about um, ESG policies and uh, like what what drives them and things like that. And, and we did get into a conversation about like the intentions of these leaders. And I, I I wouldn't put it past some of them that they're really they really are led by Malthusian um, uh, beliefs that they they really do care about population control and that i I mean it it really seems weird that every single one of their policies points towards uh, mass starvation especially in the third world um that's where we will see most of it and then uh europe will definitely feel it too and then eventually i mean it's going to hit the united states here too if if it doesn't stop
1: talk about spurring a second um massive refugee crisis we saw what a conflict you know concurrent conflicts in iraq and syria um with you know sides in iraq and this hell in northern africa how much that flooded europe when the entire global south is sitting there hungrier hungrier than they were before with more expensive fuel uh than there was before um you have to imagine that you would see another massive influx of people now to a continent that has less resources than ever to deal with it um once again it's the lack of thinking about secondary and tertiary impacts that is remarkable to me. Well, one thing that shocked me was, um, I think it was the, tr- the Treasury Department didn't have a person dedicated to reviewing secondary impacts of their sanctions until like this month. Like they didn't have like a special office of like, oh, like, um, how, how can our sanctions affect things beyond just how we intend our sanctions to affect things? Like, like they were thinking about it, but they didn't have people dedicated to that. And that blew my mind, because to me, before you ever implement a sanction, you should be thinking about every secondary and tertiary impact possible. Uh, Because even if it's not the American people that are being adversely infected, you don't want to go create new enemies around the world by impacting their economies with your economic sanctions. Um, And that's really where it seems like we're headed. And Russia and Russia less so than China. Uh, engages countries around the world trying to you know keep their their sphere of influence wide um, but a lot of countries are just naturally gravitating towards that BRICS sphere um, because they are seemingly so actively pushed away um, or at least disregarded in terms of concern by these major western powers um, who have more capability to help them positively than anyone else Uh, so it's just, it's, it's crazy disappointing to see that that's where the situation has led us. Um, and I'm, once again, I'm not even the most like bleeding heart person in terms of getting humanitarian aid everywhere around the world, but in terms of like the markets had pretty naturally developed to be sending grain from places like Russia and Ukraine to places in the middle East and Africa that can't grow the quantities needed for their booming populations. Right so when you're thinking about conflict and sanctions in that part of the world that should have been so obvious up front and the u.s insists that their sanctions never impacted russia's ability to export grain and fertilizer and agricultural supplies and the kremlin insisted that the sanctions do not that there's sanctions written saying the u.s bans russian agricultural you know fertilizer and grain but that all the sanctions on the ability to transport anything out of Russia, to deal with logistics, shipping firms, the permits to be able to do things, that all of that had become so convoluted with sanctions that it was effectively de facto, if not de jure, impossible to ship grain out of Russia. And the US just hammered the line home again and again for weeks and weeks. No, we don't have any restrictions. It's not a problem, they're lying. Without even maybe acknowledging, oh, we'll look into that. It shouldn't be a problem. And if it is, we will." quickly uh, resolve that issue. It didn't even seem as that was their approach, they just denied that that could have been a legitimate concern whatsoever. And it wasn't until the UN General Assembly this week with all of these second and third world countries, uh, those are outdated terms, whatever, but all these uh, other countries, not from like the NATO US led Atlantic bloc. All these countries kind of express the same concerns very tactfully and tastefully as to not offend the major players and funders. Um, but they said, Look, yeah, this uh, these food and energy crises, haha. Ha, yeah, they um, we really hope they don't get worse. If you catch my drift, um, and so while the U.S. may think that they're gonna gain more ill will than goodwill by helping broker peace, that people will see them as as sellouts or uh, you know unfaithful or something. I don't I don't think that's the calculus. And even if that is the calculus, it's not the calculus you should be making. You should be pursuing peace, even if it's the unpopular option. In this case, though, it really does seem to be the very popular option, not just domestically, but um, internationally.
0: Yeah, so we, we talked about what it will take to achieve peace um, earlier in the podcast. Uh, but I am wondering just about how you feel about the the prospects for peace, just on a personal level, um, as someone who follows this daily, uh, just in, in these press meetings with with officials. Um, I mean, from my outlook, it's like it it seems as if the Biden doctrine is to escalate everywhere all at once. Um, I I don't understand it. Uh, We're escalating with Russia. We're seemingly escalating with China in in Taiwan. And then um, I I guarantee that they're already involved involved in these Iranian protests um, and and knowing a little bit about how uh, Russia, Iran and China have gotten together to um, they've kind of allied to to avoid um western sanctions it it just seems like we are racing towards a global conflict if not nuclear war before we're able to achieve um, peace this winter hopefully um, it comes by this winter but i am wondering just personally how you feel about the the prospects um if you if your white pilled on this, or if, if you think there's not much hope.
1: My gut feeling, and this is, I, I try and remain an optimist, but I also am sincerely optimistic that that peace can be achieved and it can be achieved before things escalate uh, beyond the controllable level. And not only am I incredibly optimistic that peace is still on the table and possible, but there's nothing more that I hope for. Uh, on a daily basis, honest to God, I, uh, a brief, a, b- a brief intro of how I came to be so, uh, involved in this, uh, this Russian, U uh, S relation game, uh, in high school, there was an exchange student from a part of Eastern Ukraine, from a part of what is now the Luhansk people's Republic, pretty much dead between where the actual like cities of, of Luhansk and Donetsk are and uh, they were an exchange student over here in, I think it was 2013, uh, 2014. And so when the conflict broke out, I remember being uh, confused, worried. You know, I had a a person now who I knew directly who was involved in it, and so I I wanted to learn more. And it was confusing to learn that um, this Ukrainian exchange student uh, only spoke Russian, only spoke Russian. And when the conflict broke out and they returned, um, her family ended up moving to Russia, um, to a Southern part of Russia, uh, where they later finished out their education, went to college, et cetera. And so having that as one of my first perceptions, I think really helped me to understand that these, these geopolitical conflicts, particularly between Russia, Ukraine, and the West are more complicated than you'd think on the surface level. Cause even in 2014, if you had just followed mainstream Western media, you would think it's similar to it is now. And there was just an arbitrary uh, Russian uh, show of aggression, military invasion in Crimea uh, and the eastern parts uh, of Ukraine there in the Donbass. But having that personal tie made me realize that it was much more complicated than it seemed on the surface. And so that's what led me to eventually when I had to pick a language uh, for university. uh, University of Montana makes you take a, a language for a lot of their degrees. And so I'm like, oh, Spanish, too many people do that. German, too many people do that. Uh, Chinese, Arabic, Japanese, too hard and weeps and stuff like that. But, you know, I have this connection to someone who speaks Russian. I'll, I'll try it. They can help me out. And I wasn't even a Russian major. I was just political science. And then after that, I fell in love with the language, the literature, the culture, the history, because it was so rich and deep and had this quality to it that was not 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 better, but distinct and different um, from from operating with an English mind and from an American cultural perspective. Um, And so I finished my degree there in in Russian and political science. I went over and I spent time in Siberia in the most Montana-like part of Russia I could find um, and, and got to spend time with just your average Russian people, your average Russian students and workers and employees, know what it's like to live in a Soviet um, apartment block built in the the days of Khrushchev and shop in their supermarkets. And you realize that as much as Russians and Americans are distinct and different, we have a lot in common as well as people and as countries too. And this is something I'm not the first to point out. We are two preeminent global northern empires, you can argue that neither of us are empires, both have been empires. They're both also remarkably diverse, multi ethnic empires you know the, the US is a notorious melting pot. And people don't normally think about Russia as a melting pot. But there are literally, uh, you know, 100 plus uh, ethnic groups living in Russia more in the days of the Soviet Union, and the Russian Empire. And so for hundreds of years, the Russian system has been one of competing ethnic and, and national and identity interests. But has still remained a relatively strong block, much like the U.S. has, despite its melting pot status. And not only that, they're coast-to-coast powers from Atlantic to Pacific, both respectively. Um, and they're places where, in their expansion and settlement, across uh, those more uh, uh, previously uh, un- unwesternized areas, they contacted indigenous peoples um, in, in Russia, in Siberia. All those indigenous peoples are remarkably similar in culture to, to the Native Americans, the indigenous people of North America, and that makes sense, given what we know standard, at least, of, of human settlement theory around the continents. Um, but it also makes you realize how close our governments have interacted in our um, treatment of them. You know, a lot of the, the natives uh, in that part of Russia died of disease. Um, they were uh, Russified by uh, the Russians as they came and settled the area. Um, You know the environment um, wasn't respected in the way that the the native populations wanted to. Anyway, there's just remarkable similarities between the Russian story, despite being centuries and centuries longer, and the American story, and as well as how that impacts our people and our view of ourselves in the world. Right? Like I said, I think the U.S., despite me personally being non-interventionist, we are still prideful about the the respect and the the role that we play in the world. Now, while I'd like that role to be very focused on on diplomacy and peacemaking and 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 forging the best future possible for as many nations as possible um I I do enjoy the fact that our country has a certain amount of prestige to it we've earned it in a sense I like to feel and Russians feel very similarly right about their own place in the world um uh so That's a long winded way to say I'm very uh, I'm connected to this issue. I have lots of ties, lots of friends in Russia, um, lots of friends in Ukraine as well, who I've met over the years, because despite the conflict there between like 2014 and now, you know, Ukrainians and Russians still intermingled relatively uh, regularly and freely. You know, the people of Ukraine and Russia didn't hate each other. You know, they're they're uh, Eastern Slavic brothers in a sense. Um, the, the ties, the languages, the cultures aren't that different. There's a tremendous amount of overlap. Um, you know, the, the Rus, as we know it, the Kievan Rus started in Kiev in the area that is now Ukraine, but the country of Russia has kind of, um, taken over that identity despite lacking that actual original, um, origin point of the Kievan Rus, um, And so looping this back to peace, sorry to kind of go off there. I I was kind of reminiscing on a lot of things, but um, getting back to the prospects of peace, that's why I want nothing more than peace is to me, Russia and America are not naturally oppositional forces, but they can be naturally complementary, not necessarily cooperative as though we have to form some joint Russo-American alliance for the world. But we have a lot of uh, Complementary features, and we can complement each other's interests as well. Uh, really propel each other to be the best versions of the United States and Russia, respectively. And that doesn't just apply to the U.S. and Russia. I think we should pursue similar relationships with all nations possible. Um, but in this case, I think it just needs to be said and heard that we're not the, the the Russian people and the American people are not naturally opposed to one another. They don't have to be there, at the very least and we shouldn't be pushing ourselves rhetorically and in terms of our meta-narrative in that direction. Uh, because if we fully commit to that line of thinking and that line of, of Pax Americana at all costs, uh, we're doomed. I mean, it's going to fall. You can't sustain the Pax Americana. So you have to think about what role America plays in a, in a non-Pax world.
0: Yeah, we really need to... Uh- to shake off the the binary of the Cold War propaganda that really set the U.S. against Russia, I, it is funny that like in all of our, um, you know, even Marvel movies pose Russia as as a villain. And any time Russia is brought up in in a movie, it's typically in a negative context in the U.S. And it's, I mean, like even in politics, Russia is used as as the boogeyman um, that interfered in our elections and things like that but uh really your message is uh peace and trade and friendship among all nations all nations and um i I really appreciate that that you continue to share that message and that you have on my podcast so much um but i am curious critical it's critical if if no one does it then we're never
1: going to end up there and so i'm glad that not only voices like myself and yours but other people you have on the podcast dave smith um everyone's out there spreading the good word for peace because it's populations all over north america europe the developing world are going to start screaming it soon enough if it's not heard in regular dialogue
0: yeah well i, I am wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to uh, cover if there's any other news item that you wanted to bring up that uh, i might not be aware of um before we uh, sign off.
1: let's see here nothing that stands out in particular
0: i'll tell you a little
1: bit about a story that I'm trying to kind of break open and follow here. That's been very, very opaque, at least from, like a, uh, from what I've been able to gather so far. And that's the threat of, of Ukraine becoming an arms trafficking hub of the world, both during and potentially after this conflict, if there were to be a resolution. Uh, this is something that I think anyone reporting on wars and conflict should be asking about, especially when there's a large influx of new arms to the region, right? So in the conflict in the Balkans in the 90s, and then in the Caucasus as well there, and then in the Middle East later on in the 2000s, these areas became large arms trafficking hubs of the world because there was all of a sudden a lot more arms floating around with a lot more instability and a lot more actors looking to take advantage of that, whether that's just scummy businessmen genuine organized crime terrorist organizations um, places of conflict and massive arms influx are just ripe for the arms trafficking trade to emerge and our government has put seemingly zero effort into monitoring or at least publicly monitoring uh the potential for that to become a reality because like i said we've sent like 16 billion plus dollars of aid much of that security aid in the form of weapons Uh, to Ukraine. And there have been pictures, I haven't bought one personally to confirm, but on like black market arms trafficking sites, US anti-armor rockets and the like, and and other arms from Ukraine popping up there all over the place at remarkably cheap prices. Um, And organized crime is a a very real network in Europe. People don't realize uh, that Europe isn't this totally developed utopian place like some uh, Americans, especially the progressive variety like to imagine it. Um, gun violence is still a very real thing, especially in areas uh, further east, you know, places like the Balkans where these arms could triple, uh, trickle uh, over into um, inter-ethnic violence that we see um, now in Central Europe, now that it's more of a melting pot, um, where terrorist organizations are, are still lurking. Uh, people forget there where there was like a solid 10 years uh, where Europe was seeing these ISIS, uh, or ISIS related terror attacks all the time. Anyway, our Pentagon, has refused to answer questions from me about what our level of visibility really is. Uh, I think it was a couple months back now at this point, they conceded that the fog of war is pretty strong and they don't have perfect visibility and fidelity on a lot of the arms that end up in Ukraine. But after that disturbing revelation, uh, they haven't really given anything else more. Now, Congress in a continuing resolution to fund the government and uh, prevent a shutdown by this Friday is also considering giving like 12.4 billion uh, more dollars authorized for spending for Ukraine, as well as 3.7 billion more in a like sending from stocks that we already have. Um, But in that whole thing of that new, like, you know, dozen plus billion dollars, uh, like 2 million of that, a measly 2 million is going towards an inspector general to monitor uh, end use of equipment sent to Ukraine. And that's the first little inkling I've seen that maybe the Pentagon is concerned about this, that maybe they realize they need to be keeping a close eye on where these billions in arms sent to Ukraine end up. Um, Because if we don't, if we don't have good monitoring and visibility, if the Ukrainian forces and militias are not keeping a tight control on a lot of these arms, especially if they're going to not formal Ukrainian military forces, some of the Azov battalions and the like, um, we don't know where these could end up and we want to know where they end up so they don't end up in the wrong hands, Uh, you know, US uh, military hardware. Uh, And so that's an issue that I'm trying to get more and more info on, on the daily, constantly stalled. Pentagon never gives me a single question. It drives me nuts. I understand that, you know, there's only so many questions they can take and they don't want to take them from people who are going to be too critical or ask, you know, uh, too pointed of questions. Um, but I think if this were any other conflict and we were sending this many arms, people would be asking this question on a weekly basis to make sure that this isn't an issue. Um, because as I see it right now, it seems to be an emerging threat, uh, arms coming out of Ukraine. And they've conceded as well, the Pentagon, that Russian forces have abandoned equipment as they retreat, especially with this uh, counteroffensive. And so similarly, it's not just U.S. arms. I will fairly, very fairly say that uh, the influx of arms from Russian forces as well should be of concern. You know, in these areas uh, where Russians abandon their arms, um, are those just being picked up by the first person to get there? Is the Ukrainian forces making concerted effort to, uh, you know, uh, corral up any arms that, that may be left behind? These are questions that are very legitimate for people who not only want peace now but who don't want random secondary tertiary conflicts and violence being fueled by the arms of this conflict especially if they have a big old American flag printed
0: on them yeah absolutely well I'm sure I'll have you back on the show uh, to talk about that as, as we learn more and don't if, if about you know, a peace deal yeah well right and and if you get any more information on on where the arms are going or anything like that and if they do eventually ask one of your or answer one of your questions, we'll have to have you on to uh, talk about it. Um, and on that point, ha- has anyone ever answered any of your questions? Like, have you ever Very had occasionally. Okay.
1: Very occasionally, um, usually on background. So for those who don't know, the US government has this ridiculous thing uh, called on background, which is like half on the record. They'll talk to you, you can use their quotes, but you just can't use their name or even official title. So that's where when you see senior defense officials, senior military officials, senior administration official, that's called going on background. And so they're more willing to answer questions on background because then there's not a formal name to blame uh, for, for answering a question that might make them look bad uh, or more frequently dodging a question that might make them look bad. Um, and then we have gotten some on the record as well, um, usually by chance and usually not during serious briefings. Uh, like I said, the State Department energy guy answered a question about whether they'd support Europe keeping nuclear plants open and the like. Um, But sadly, we don't get many chances to ask about arms trafficking or peace prospects. Two questions I had lined up for Pentagon, they had an on-background briefing today. I was lined up to ask about visibility on uh, U.S. arms being sent to Ukraine and abandoned Russian arms, as well as um, uh, prospects for peace if the U.S. uh, military has had any military-to-military contacts um, trying to de-escalate things sadly did not get a chance to ask either um funnily enough at the very at the very end of the thing they're like oh we have like a couple minutes left one last question to uh, to cnn or whoever and the cnn guy goes no all my questions are answered thank you, you can go to someone else and instead of going to the other person on the list sitting there waiting me they just totally outright end the call on st- uh, instead uh so you can tell they don't care to answer questions from everybody um, AP is always going to get the first question. Reuters is always going to be up there. You know, the Bloomberg's of the world. Um, and to keep getting the first question, they can't be asking the things uh, that might make the head haunches upset. Um, things like peace and ensuring uh, that gun violence isn't uh, uh, made a further issue by U.S. policy. But if they don't care about peace and gun violence, you know, they can uh, midterm on that. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, I would recommend that everyone go listen to our uh, previous podcast, and I'll um, retroactively, I'll link that in the description of this podcast, so people can check those out. And then I'm I'm also releasing a uh, podcast tomorrow, a, a pretty long one about the the history of this conflict. Um, I I had a uh, uh, Benjamin Ablo, the author of How the West Brought War to Ukraine, on the show, and and I'll release that tomorrow. Um, It was very informative. Uh, The the book is like 70 pages and he just, I mean, it's packed full of information and it has endorsements by like John Mearsheimer, Noam Chomsky, uh, Chas Freeman, and a few others. So people
1: who know foreign policy. Yeah. People who understand the issue, understand how uh, how we got here. So I appreciate you having me on. Look forward to coming back in the future, hopefully with uh, better news to talk about in brief and uh, yeah, listen to Liam's other shows here um, other podcasts and subscribe, uh, to his channel. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. Take care. Liam.